Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets done. I'm Avi Stamen, your new co-host of Scholarly Communication alongside Daniel Shea. In addition to hosting the podcast, I am the CEO of Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short. ALE helps academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing, and publication support for their research. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Talia Mayron-Schatz. Talia is a keynote speaker, consultant, and researcher at the intersection of medicine and behavioral economics, and the author of the new book, Your Life Depends on It. What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health, recently published by Basic Books. She is a full professor at the Business School of the Ono Academic College in Israel, senior fellow at the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest in New York, and a visiting researcher at the University of Cambridge. Miran Schatz was Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman's postdoctoral researcher at Princeton University and taught consumer behavior at Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of over 60 academic papers on medical decision-making. She's also the CEO of Cure My Way, an international health consulting firm on behavioral change and digital health, whose clients include Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Samsung, and multiple startups. Uh, Talia, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you. So let's get right into it. This, you, did, you recently published a book with the quite a, a bombastic title, Your Life Depends on It. Um, and I'm kind of curious what led you, what was the process that led you to writing this book? I understand that in order to really track it back, we actually need to go back to, uh, your days in, in middle school. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. So I've been studying medical decision-making, teaching medical decision-making and working with companies that do digital health or pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies and health advertisers for quite a long time, basically trying to get people to take better care of their own health when it's consumer-facing, to help doctors make better choices, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been working on it for a long time. I've been writing a lot of papers, but I also realized something that I can't really write in a paper because it's a bit more of a soapbox argument, although I can prove it. And that is that on one hand, we're now given much more choice 
in our healthcare decisions, and that's great. But on the other hand, we don't really have the power always to make this, these choices in the most optimal way. We don't always have the wherewithal to just decide and look at information when we're patient, when we're sick, when we're worried. We don't always have the information delivered to us in a way that we can understand it, be it words or probabilities, medical terms, anything. So basically, we need a lot of help. And that took me back to my time in the sixth grade when I was diagnosed with scoliosis, which I didn't quite know what that was. It meant my back was crooked and I was offered a treatment that I didn't want. And I was not offered an alternative. I was not told you know, would this treatment work? To what degree? For how long? How would it impact me? None of these. And nobody even asked me. Like, I was not expected to ask anything. And nobody invited me to a conversation. And it was a while ago. So I couldn't just Google it. Google had not yet been invented. So I guess this is something that's been bothering me for a long time. The issue of can we really empower patients? Can we truly help them make decisions that are right for them? Wow, that's really interesting. So, as a as a fellow um, scoliosis patient, I can definitely uh, resonate. I don't think I don't think my case is nearly as bad as yours as yours was. All I can recall is that uh, being told that I wore my 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 knapsack, my backpack, on one shoulder too often, and I don't. And later, I later I was told that that may not be true. But but regardless, um, I, I think what you're saying really hits home in terms of I think we've all at least you know once or twice in our life been in a situation where We've had to face, you know, um, uh, a doctor who who may have a lot of responsibilities and juggling a lot of different patients at one time, and doesn't necessarily have uh, either the communication skills. So I'm, maybe I'll turn that into a question. Do you think this is more a question of time and resources, or do you think it's a training and communication issue? Like, where what's the heart? What's the root of the of the issue? Which I guess would be the first step in terms of trying to go about solving it. Right. So it's a, it's a really great question. I'll tell you how my thought evolved on this. So when I started writing the book, I started writing takeaways for patients, as in, here's how you can do better. Then I thought, they interact with physicians. And I should write takeaways for physicians, because this is what physicians should do better, like in terms of inviting people and explaining information, etc. And then I realized these conversations take place within the confines of a healthcare organization. That determines how long the patient and the doctor will spend together, how the information will be delivered. Will the doctor be trained in conveying information? Will anything be helping them? And I don't know if we'll have the time, but I'm involved with, uh, I'm a visiting researcher at the Winton Center for Risk and and, uh, Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. And something beautiful that they did at the center is to create a decision aid, a tool for women who have, who've had breast cancer and are now determining what to do next. And I'm mentioning it because it's so clear and it is so easy to use and it is based on so much information and so many resources that went into it and so much work that went into making it user-friendly that there is no way that one doctor, as, as well-intentioned as they can be, would be able to create this. So basically... It's a multi-tiered issue and the resolution must come also from multiple directions, from patients, from physicians, and from healthcare organizations. Interesting. Interesting. Because I, you know, my first, my first thought when you, when you're talking about all these different um, decision makers and, 
and, and, and, you know, informed bodies that are involved in the decision-making process is, wow, that's a big task to handle, right? It's one thing to try and uh, uh, train doctors, or it's another thing to try and give information to patients, but to try to change an entire medical system, especially if you were spending time in the U.S., and we know how complicated that medical system can be, uh, may seem overwhelming. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm impressed with it, you know, with the ability to not see that as a challenge, which is so large that it can't you know, possibly be tackled. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. I don't think it's an easy task at all. Um, and one thing that I did do and I made a point of doing is always indicate the benefits, not to patients, forget it, not to physicians who also benefit from having better communication with their patients, but to healthcare systems, the benefit in terms of ROI bottom line. So when a healthcare organization says, why do I care? I mean, patients don't understand. Okay, that's the kind of their problem. Well, no, I tell them it's your problem. And if you make it better, you're going to benefit. Don't do it because you're a nice person and you just want to be good to patients and then you'll stop the program if you don't have resources. Do it because you care about yourself. And indeed, I give an example from the Utah healthcare system that was rated rather poorly. And then they really upped their game and they've involved patients in determining what patients wanted and how they wanted health delivered. And they involved healthcare professionals and they changed their delivery system completely around. And they did things that changed the attitude and changed the flow of care and changed the wait time and changed things with, with local initiatives like the way that patients are handed over from one healthcare professional to another. And you know that when you're in the hospital, you have a really nice nurse and then she, she leaves. She goes home. You're on your own. What? You're shocked. But if she comes over and says, hi, Avi, how are you? Uh, this is my colleague, Lisa. She'll be taking care of you. Lisa, this is Avi, blah, 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 blah. Then something happens. You're not alone anymore. You're not deserted anymore. This is nice for your nurse who doesn't feel she's deserting you. It's nice for Lisa, who doesn't feel you're hostile towards her. And it's nice for you. And patients complain less and consume less healthcare services like that. So it's really a very small thing. It's just a tiny example, but it's already meaningful. It takes into account people's healthcare needs, but also their emotional needs. And emotions are such a major factor in how we take care of ourselves. Right. And it's interesting because even in the first couple minutes that we're chatting here today, it seems like the solution, you have mentioned examples of solutions that are both technological as well as human. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your approach is integrative, that there's no, you know, you, you're going to have to integrate both the human element and, and, and training and, and, and real, you know, working with nurses and doctors, but also have the technology to sort of back them up to give them the support that they need to be able to really deliver, or to the patients for that matter, to deliver the best uh, possible, you know, uh, result and, and, and also empower the patients to, to take control over their own medical situation. Absolutely. And actually, some people could think or say, uh, well, what you're saying is redundant. We have such great digital health tools. We don't need you. Well, the truth is that a recent paper showed something that I've been talking about for a long time, and my research has also been showing, and th they gave it a sexy title. So the sexy title said, rich people benefit more from digital health compared with poor people. 
So what does this mean? means rich people who are more educated, who are more digitally savvy. So basically just having great digital health tools is not enough because who are they great for? Are they great for someone who can manage their own health on their own pretty much? Or are they also great for someone who has lower literacy, lower health literacy, lower digital literacy? And if you want to bridge that gap, what are you doing? Are you even aware that there's a gap? So basically people create Creating just just to finish the thought, with digital tools, we have so many capabilities and we have got to integrate, as you so eloquently put it, the human element, the elements of comprehension, of motivation into the digital tools so everyone can benefit. Interesting. This really ties in quite nicely to my last interview. Um, I interviewed uh, uh, Ayelet Baram Tabari um, just a few days ago. And she was doing research on what medical information is available in what in different languages. Anyone who knows me will know that I'm I'm very I'm very involved and passionate about languages. And and you know we, we sort of take it for granted that anyone can open up Google and search in English for their medical condition and read up about it and inform themselves about it. But that's probably a very uh, um, incorrect notion, uh, either because of language or because of even if we do speak the language, that the information is in. Who's to say that information is of high quality or who's to say it's complete? Um, or who's to say it takes into the different, you know, into account the different aspects of my particular medical case. So I think, you know, maybe that's, and, and this is sort of a segue, because maybe that's, that's sort of the challenge. I know that some medical professionals have expressed frustration with the fact that, that their patients are so informed because they kind of come in already knowing what they expect their diagnosis to be and, 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 and giving doctors ideas for, for how they should, you know, act. And I wonder... I wonder if you've gotten any pushback from the medical professionals um, who feel as if their expertise is being questioned, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I'm wondering if you know if, if everyone sees you know what you're working on, or or not even necessarily you, but 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 just the general trend of patients taking control over their healthcare as uh, you know a, a positive thing, or are have there been has has there been some pushback? And do you think any of that pushback is actually warranted? And maybe we need to you know, put up some, some, a framework and boundaries for what's appropriate and what's not in the patient doctor interaction. Mm -hmm. I think for one thing, what's appropriate is always to treat each other with respect. That is always the case. And if I go to see a medical professional, maybe I have some ideas of what's going on and I can share them with them. What I expect a healthcare professional to do is to listen with respect to take in the information and in my book I wrote about the book the doctor who wouldn't wouldn't diagnose the zumba disease he didn't know how to cure the zumba disease and I hope it's intriguing enough for people to read my book and when we brought him information he would not listen at all he just said it's either me or the internet now I can understand doctor's frustration because people sometimes bring bogus information that they read online and sometimes they're very adamant and sometimes they treat the doctor as a technician rather than as an educated professional and none of this is helpful at all but I think informed patients are here to stay so doctors need to know how to work with them and patients need to know whether they're really informed or sort of informed and you know we've seen a lot of that unfortunately we've had terrible, very good demonstrations of people buying bogus information in the context of COVID vaccinations, of people refusing to vaccinate, sometimes to their own detriment. So 
this this really needs to be balanced between I can read and I can read online and there's information online and I want to be healthy and therefore I need to choose who I listen to and where I get my information. Interesting. Now I'm curious what how how does this book and and your research in general fit in the greater context of digital health? I know that's a term that's thrown out very often so maybe you could help us define it as well. Um, but w- what role are, do, does it play and, and, and how does your work sort of contribute to that field? Right. So digital health received a major boost now with COVID because digital health is a very broad term that basically means what do we do that maybe used to be done in person or maybe did not used to be done at all or was only done in the lab that is now providing patients and physicians through digital tools, the ability to interact, the ability to monitor health, and the ability to improve health. And in, the, and in theory, that's fantastic. And oftentimes in practice, that's also fantastic. But the beautiful thing is everything I wrote about how patients need to connect with their physicians and how patients need to receive information in ways they understand and how patients need to have choice delivered to them in ways that make sense, and how doctors often and patients often also avoid having tough conversations. All of these things, are we also see them on digital tools, in digital tools. Um, I can give you... I can give you great examples. We're speaking now. Christmas was not so long ago. I'm guessing many people got various fitness devices for Christmas. And I wonder if they'll be still using them, if they'll still be using them until, say, Valentine's Day. And I'm being optimistic here. So if they ditch those devices, why is this happening? Maybe because they don't quite understand what the device is telling them. Maybe because it's demotivating them. Maybe if you go on a, if you put on a specific watch and it tells you your weight or the percentage of fat in your body and you don't like these numbers, then you just feel like it's insulting you. It's not motivating you. And this layer of motivation needs to be embedded in the information. Otherwise, it's just demotivating and this was not the purpose, right? Um, Likewise, with any digital tool, comprehension needs to be there for you to understand both the information that you're seeing, say, in terms of your blood pressure, your blood sugar levels for diabetics or just for people in general, et cetera, et cetera. So what does this mean? Am I on the red line? Is this fine? Am I fine now or am I kind of fine and I really should be more mindful of my health? And what should I do? What are the next steps? And these are things that we don't always know. We can be, we can see that we're not in a great place, but we're not sure how to proceed from there. So everything applies to digital health as well. And there's another point that applies to digital health, and it's really pretty cool. And it's cool because it's something that I've been working on for a long time with large corporations who built platforms for adherence to medication, with smaller startup companies, etc. And that's the relationship aspect. The more we care about something, the more likely we are to use it. The more we feel that someone cares about us, the more likely we are to adhere to what they're telling us to do. So these are elements that need to be integrated into digital health. And it sounds weird because it's a device, but you know that you like some of your devices. They make you feel good. They're fun to use. They motivate you. They reinforce you. 
They reassure you when you fall off the wagon, so to speak, in terms of health. And all of this needs to be integrated into digital device. And of course, it needs to be there in our very personal relationship with our healthcare providers. So in this context, you say something really interesting in the book, which has got me thinking, which is that we actually, in making our health choices, we can actually, there's, there's, there's a certain level of confirmation bias, and we can actually trick our brains into thinking that something that's really, you know, unimportant is actually quite important for our health. Maybe, you know, a supplement, which is not, you know, not proven. It's just an example. Um, or the opposite. Or we think, nah, you know, we, I'm, I, I'll speak, you know, in very general terms. You know, I know that, um, you know, I, I have some friends who, you know, who will turn around and unless they're really bleeding out, will say, nah, I don't need a doctor. I don't really need to take care of this. It's sort of a, maybe it's a, a more of a manly, you know, approach. I don't know. But, but it's, um, you know, but things that we really do need to be taking care of in our health and we, and we ignore them. So can you, I know that, you know, you, your, your background is really um, in psychology. I'm curious sort of how, what is the pro, why is it that we do that to ourselves? And maybe what are some of the behavior patterns that we can become cognizant and aware of? And then, you know, maybe try and reverse if we are doing, if we are lying to ourselves, essentially. <laughs> well, lying to ourselves sounds meaner, I think, than what we, what we aim to do. But I, I completely understand. So let's start with the confirmation bias. So the confirmation bias means that when we have an opinion, and it doesn't even have to be very founded, we like information that supports our opinion. Because that's fun. It's easy. We don't have to reassess our attitudes. And we already knew that we were smart. And now our smartness is being, uh, is being uh, supported. And that's great, right? And I say we like it because we use what Kahneman calls system one. That's quick, quick and dirty thinking that's not based on a lot of information. We use it very often. So when we receive information, say, about a supplement, and I remember there was a pomegranate oil a while ago. My mom said, buy me some pomegranate oil. I'll be a completely new woman. I said, mom, I like you the way you are. What do you mean? But it was, it was, it was such a ludicrous promise, but it was very tempting. Why was it tempting? Because it was very much a system one kind of temptation. It did not provide a lot of information. It provided emotion. It didn't confuse people with numbers. I mean, what does it mean to confuse people with numbers? If you say there will be a 30% reduction in your wrinkles, okay, that's very system two kind of information. System two is based on on data, numbers, facts, very little emotion. That's boring. 30% reduction is like, okay, whatever. But a completely new woman? Now that's amazing. Or, you know, you'll be a, you'll be a superhero. Now I like that. I want to be a superhero. I don't want to be a little less tired, right? So we fall for these things. We fall for these claims and advertisers know that. And we fall for them with the pomegranate oil for, for the face or any face cream. And we fall for them with supplements. And I show that we also fall for them sadly with cancer treatments. We don't always probe and we really want that emotional component. We want the hope and we go for it. So that's, that's one thing that we do. And that's the confirmation bias. And you asked something that I think is really, really interesting. It's like in life, there are not many instances when you know that you have to do something. So when you break your arm, what do you do? 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, I would say I go to go to my local uh, health clinic. That would be my first guess. Exactly, like ASAP, right? You're not going to say, well, let's see, my friend found a solution. No, you're like, I broke my arm. I'm going to put a cast on it now, right now. And that's very obvious. But when you exercise a little less, it's a lot less obvious. There's no like, people don't look at you and say, Avi, what are you doing? Go to the hospital right now, right? It's, it's just, it's a lot less obvious. There are a lot fewer signs that something is happening or that something might happen if you continue down this path. And that's where we really need to be mindful of our health and our health habits. That's basically the most unsexy but truly important term of preventive medicine because nobody usually says, I feel so terrible, I have to start running. No, you're just slack one day after another. And then an X amount of years down the road, you say, oh my God, I'm so not fit. I can't climb up two flights of stairs or I'm developing diabetes because of my eating habits and not exercising, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in the beginning, nothing seems to happen. And that's actually something that I, I wanted to, you know, you said that I am undeterred by challenges basically. So maybe 10 years ago, I was hired by Johnson & Johnson, VP of Health Policy, to try and curb chronic diseases, no less, right? And it was before people had apps, so we des- we designed something that wasn't an app but could be an app, and that was, let's take the seven biggest indicators of chronic disease, and let's look at them. And there are things like having too much alcohol, um, and they're not the indicators, sorry, they're the causes. Having too much alcohol, smoking, not exercising, being overweight, et cetera, et cetera. And let's give, give people points if they don't engage in these behaviors or these labels don't apply to them. And we'll take away the point if these labels do apply to them. And the maximum points you could get was a seven. That was very straightforward. That's a very so system-wide like, sort of thing. It's like car insurance. It's like if you don't get into accidents, then your insurance goes down. You get into a lot of accidents, your insurance goes up. Exactly. That's right. And yeah. it, it was easy. It was super easy. And my my image was of this guy. He was like maybe 28 or 30 looking at himself in the mirror, you know, saying, my God, I look great. But then filling out our scorecard and getting a four out of seven saying, what the heck? You know, what do you mean I'm just a four? But yeah, because maybe he drinks too much and sleeps too little and doesn't work out or smokes, and then he gets a four. And it's great to get this four before you have any health problems, before you have any health issues. So that's the really the tricky bit of, of knowing that you were four and saying, wow, I'm a four. That's not great. What am I going to do about it? These are two distinct connected and crucial steps to maintaining one's health. And if you can do that in any way, be it through your doctor, through digital health, et cetera, it's fantastic. And you know, it, it's it's maybe not coincidental that we're speaking now, it's the beginning of the new year, 2022, and everyone will be making wonderful New Year's resolutions. So that's a great time to sort of give yourself 
a mental checkup of where am I with my health and what can I do about it? And how do I decide what to do and who do I consult? Wow. Now, anyone who uh, tunes in regularly to this podcast knows that we're the, the, the podcast is about scholarly communication and it's about how how academia and how scholarship is is passed on and 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 understood by you know decision makers uh, stakeholders and the general public and it seems to me my impression um, from your book but also just listening over the last half hour is that you have this approach which sort of integrates first of all it's knowing how to take the research that you've done and implement it in a in a very real and visceral way. Um, but secondly, always having one step sort of in the academic world and one step in the, you know, maybe in the in industry or, or just in the general health world. And I'm curious whether that was intentional. Did you always have this, you know, balance? I don't know how you do it. I mean, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite amazing. I'm sure a lot of scholars who are listening to this say, you know, how could you write articles and consult, you know, and be a CEO at the same time? So maybe you could share some secrets with us uh, you know, is this something that you kind of always did or is this something that you did you, you know, build out your academic career first and then move over to industry and how and, and, and you know, I'm, I asked too many multi-part questions, so my apologies, <laughs> but how um, how do you, you know, move back and forth between these two worlds in a way where, you know, you're able to successfully stay current on the research, but also, you know, meet all the demands of the Johnson Johnsons of the world? <laughs> wow. That's that's a fairly long question. Loaded question. Um, yes, I know. <laughs> no, it's it's a great one though. I did not think I would be working in the industry. It happened a little a little after I started uh, I started uh, doing research. I think something that led to it, and I wasn't unaware of, was me starting to teach consumer behavior at Wharton, which I did for a number of years for undergrads and MBAs, and really assigning them to using theory in order to solve real-world problems. So that was one step in that direction. And yes, I do integrate both industry and research. I think it's vital. I think anyone like me who does medical decision-making does that with at least half a mind of influencing how health is delivered and, and how healthy people are. So it seemed to me, at least to me, that I had to do something that's more actionable. And in fact, my research now is veering a little bit toward the whole notion of what some people call implementation or translation. And basically, it's taking the research and bringing it to action. And it's something that's been on my mind for a long time. I was at the Medicine 2.0 conference in Maastricht. I think it was 2010, a long time ago. And people were presenting beautiful projects, people being psychologists, researchers, physicians, beautiful. But the thing is, they have a project, they present it, they write a paper, and they move on. What's what's happening with the project? It's a solution to a problem. Why, why is, it not, is it not being picked up? So for a number of years, I created VC panels in such conferences, and I led the Pharma 2.0 uh, group in New York City's Health 2.0 meetup, thousands of thousands of members, in order to integrate industry in academia and bring all the beautiful academic knowledge into the industry where it can, where it can have an enormous impact. And I guess that's what I'm increasingly about is the impact of this knowledge. And by the way, I, I command your mission. And I think we are very similar in these missions because I think if I write a wonderful academic paper, for example, 
on how digital health can be used by senior citizens. They can really enjoy it and really benefit from it, but it needs to be tailored to their needs. And you can't just put an iPod, an iPad in their lap and say, use it because they don't know where to turn it on. They have no idea how to program whatever it is they need to program. So if you help them overcome this preliminary step, they will use it and they can use it then for an adherence to medication device. And it will be fantastic. Yeah. And I, I, you know, in a more general way, I think that, you know, one of my takeaways from the last few years and the pandemic has been, you know, to what extent maybe academia didn't do a good enough job in sharing uh, research in a way which was palpable and understandable and digestible to the general public. Um, You know, obviously, you know, different publics digest information in different ways, but um, I think there were certain basic tenets that maybe I took for granted about the authority of science, uh, you know, growing up as a student who took science for, for 12 years, which I was fairly shocked to hear others who just didn't take science seriously. I mean, I guess that's sort of the, a blunt, easy way to put it. Um, and to, and maybe that shows that we need, that there's more that we all need to do in the scientific community to make what it is that we're saying, um, not just publish it in the new England journal of medicine or in Lancet, but actually figure out how, once we do those wonderful things, we can, translate it, and not necessarily in terms of language, but can be language as well, but translate it into uh, digestible and understandable content that is engaging, interesting, and and invites people in as opposed to pushing them away. I couldn't agree with you more. I think people also have a role here. They have a role in saying, well, the slogans someone's giving me are very tempting. They're very simple. They're very emotional. That's great. But what's the foundation behind them? What's the science behind them? COVID is not existent. Vaccines are toxic. You know, things get thrown out in the air. So really, where's the evidence? Prove it to me. Show me. If you say vaccines don't work, for example, then how come I see that many, many more people who are unvaccinated end up in the hospital with COVID than those who are vaccinated? So basically, it's on scientists to deliver their information in a way that's understandable. And it is on the public to demand credible information rather than just big words with nothing behind them, nothing to support them. Right. Now, on this topic of, of, of popular audience versus, um, you know, versus, let's say, appealing just to, uh, you know, our colleagues, um, I find it interesting, the, your decision to publish this book with basic books, which is not, I wouldn't call it a, um, a, you know, a typical academic university publisher. It's definitely not. Uh, they definitely publish uh, intellectually provoking titles. Um, and, and that's probably why you chose to, to publish it there. But was that a debate? Did you think twice about whether you wanted to publish this book in you know, the academic world or whether you wanted a more, you know, a broad, a broader audience? And kind of what was your thought process, especially considering the fact that, you know, uh, for many scholars, where they publish can have a direct impact on tenure and career. And you know, is it something that you only have the luxury to do once you've already made it in your career? Or you know, would you encourage scholars that, rele- that it's relevant for to actually consider trade and more popular um, audiences, even maybe earlier on, if they have what to say to the general public? I think that's a complicated question with complicated answers that depend 
on where you are in your career trajectory and also in your institution? What sort of institution oh, yeah. you're I, in? I don't, inv- I don't invite you here to ask you simple questions. You know, we can, <laughs> we can do that another time. It's got to be complicated. <laughs> I'll t- I'll, I can talk about myself. I definitely did not want to write a purely academic work, book because I didn't think it would have that much of an impact. And I knew it would be completely inaccessible to the public audience. I had the luxury of publishing with Basic, which is a great publishing house. They publish Eric Topol. They publish Freud. They published the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I mean, I'm in very, very, very good company. So academically, even if I, even though I did not go with an academic publisher, no one can belittle my work and say, oh, come on, she just published with this unknown publisher. Um, but I also had the privilege of doing that when I was on my way to becoming a full professor. And that's important to note. And I think others, other people sometimes choose differently and they might get penalized. And that's not nice, but the world isn't always nice, right? So that's not always nice because the game we play in academia is an academic game. And sometimes the goal is to improve the world. And sometimes the goal is to produce academic materials, in which case it's not what I produced. Although I wrote a book that's very, very evidence-based with as many citations as you want and can be used for courses, for teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Did it, did it actually impact the way you approached the writing? Like, can you talk about how, when you were sitting down to actually start writing this book and you had all the ideas and you had all the concepts and you probably have published academic articles, uh, you know, on a number of the topics in the field, what was it, how, in what way is your approach different? If a scholar was in your shoes and, and thinking about it, how did you go about thinking through how you wanted to structure the book in a way that may be different than had you been aiming this at more of a traditional university publisher? Well, I could have more fun is one <laughs> thing. Really, really. So, you know, and I'll give you a great example. When I wrote about choice, I explained what I was going to do in the chapter. I sort of recapped it in the beginning of the chapter. And then I said, but first, let's talk about paint. And I love paint. My walls are all white. And that's really that's embarrassing, but I love paint. I love looking at paint catalogs. I love thinking of what color I would put where. And I wrote about my love of that and how I look at various colors and shades and how wonderful and enticing it is, but also very confusing. And that I think is typical of a choice process. We love choice. Yay. You know, there's so many flavors of ice cream. You end up having chocolate and vanilla because it's just too confusing. And it's the same thing when we choose medication. So I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be, you know, if, if I learned anything is that people like information that's easy and emotional. So I try to be a little bit of that. I try to show people that what I'm writing about is relevant to them. I did my very best to be non-judgmental, and that was part of my process. I did not want to say anything that would remotely reek of being condescending and as in, oh, the stupid patients, they don't understand, etc. I was like, no, no, we are all patients and we all might find information difficult. And here is how I'm going to show it because I'm going to interview physicians about being patients, how about how they felt as patients. And it's going to be very clear that those highly educated people don't find it very easy to be patient. So that was part of the process. Um, another part of the process that surprised me was realizing that whatever plagues 
patients plagues physicians. And that was a surprise. So I didn't think, for example, in the chapter on relationship, that I would be writing about how doctors feel when they are confronted with patients, what their emotions are. Do they feel cared for? Do they feel that they're treated like a person by their patients and by their healthcare system? That was the process. So I wanted to bring good current information, research, but also to create takeaways that people will be able to read and say, this is very informative and here's what I'm going to do about it. And I wanted to make it anecdotal as well, because that's fun and that's memorable. And when it's fun and memorable, you actually remember and you also tell your friend, oh, listen, I read this book. You should read it. That's what I had in mind. Brilliant. No, um, none of these things apply to my academic writing at all. Not that it's not <laughs> fun, it's boring, but you know, I try, but it's very different. It, th- this is true. Um, well, I will say that in my experience, I have come across, you know, a handful and, and I don't mean it, it's not too many, but there are a, a, a small handful of scholars that manage to, you know, to have fun in their academic articles as well. And I think that, um, in fact, there's a blog on our website called, um, you know, every scientific article tells a story as well. Um, and I think that that's, that actually can be a helpful writing tool um, tactic is when you're stuck in this, you know, okay, introduction, methods, discussion, right? Sometimes that can be, uh, um, you know, a bit, um, uh, can, can really sort of quell the or, or, or quash the creativity. Um, and sometimes if we can kind of tell it as a story, that can help us um, in terms of framing it and, and understanding where we're going. Um, Ty, there is so much more that we could discuss, um, but I, I want to wrap things up here. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. If, if our audience members... If there's someone who wants to, uh, you know, connect with you or, or learn more or read, um, how, how would you recommend, uh, you know, interacting with you, um, whether it be online or in socials and, um, and, and, and how can they get the book? Amazing. So the book, Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health is available wherever books are sold. I would really love for people to go on my website where there's so much information about the book, about my work, about academic papers, plenty of webinars that I recorded with things like nudges and health inequities, et cetera. And the address is very simple. It's my name, Talia, T-A-L-Y-A, Myron, M-I-R-O-N, Schatz, S-H-A-T-Z.com. And over there, there's also a contact me form. So whatever you want to know about me and about Health Decisions, taliamironchats.com. And thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Talia. If anyone wants uh, to speak with me at any point, uh, first of all, you can visit my website. Uh, that's www.aclang.com. That's short for academic language. So www.aclang.com. Uh, and also feel free to shoot me an email. Um, you can reach me at avi, A-V-I, at aclang.com. So Talia, thanks again. Uh, this has been brilliant and wonderful. Um, it was a delight speaking to you. I can't wait to see what your next book is going to be about because I'm sure it's going to be fascinating and groundbreaking. Um, keep on, you know, not being fearful of, of, of big challenges and taking on, you know, real problems. And I look forward to catching up with you as soon as possible. Thanks. Thanks so much, Avi. Take care.